Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain and we are on day 2306 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow as few have chosen to grow before. We are continuing the messages I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This is the eighth of a 10-week message series covering the characters of Christmas. This message is titled, Herod, the Monster of Christmas. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. Oh, we do appreciate everybody here. We appreciate the kids the Lord has blessed us with over this past year. And it's just been a blessing to see Putnam once again grow and flourish. So we just give the Lord praise and honor for that. Now, last week, we went on a two-year two extended expedition as we traveled with a caravan of visitors from the east in a message titled, Seeking and Finding the Wise Men. And this week, we're going to look at something a little bit different, the dark side of a Christmas character, as we analyze Herod, the monster of Christmas. And our passage today is Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. It's page 1498 in your pew Bibles, if you want to follow along. And this section is entitled, The Escape to Egypt. When the wise men had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there till I tell you, for Herod is going to do a search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled the, what the Lord has said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and the vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance to the time that he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up. Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up and took the child and his mother and went off to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So it was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, every year at this time, our family, and I'm sure many of you, gather around the TV to watch your favorite Christmas programs, Christmas movies. I think our favorite is It's a Wonderful Life, followed closely by A Muppet's Christmas Carol. Now, I've enjoyed several versions of Christmas Carol, and the one with Patrick Stewart in it, who was the captain on Star Trek. You know, great Shakespearean actor also, and he does a great job. A Christmas Carol is like several other stories that features a villain whose chief goal is to make Christmas miserable or non-existent for everyone. Dickens gives a Scrooge before he was transformed. But he's not unique. I think you'll find the same theme throughout almost every holiday movie. It's the one where they have a protagonist, somebody who's good and loves Christmas, and then the antagonist, the one who's trying to destroy the holiday cheer. 
Think of the movies, It's a Wonderful Life. Mr. Potter, he's the antagonist. The Grinch Who Stole Christmas, of course, is the Grinch, until his heart grew three times in size. Home Alone with, Harvin, with Harry and Marv, those bumbling burglars. And it seems like every Hallmark movie, although the plots are all the same, are similar to The Christmas Carol. And I think you understand what I mean. Those stories that touch our hearts, even if the plots are somewhat the same. Now, the original Christmas story also had its monster. Though his cruelties were far from cute, Herod was a legitimate villain, which is why he's not usually included in our Christmas stories, and even unusual to have a message on him. Now, I don't think I've ever seen a nativity set that included Herod as part of the cast of characters there. Herod figures very prominently, though, in the Christmas story and the fulfilling of a lot of Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah. To ignore him is to ignore a world in which Jesus was born, to miss that essential thread of God's grand plan for redemption. Underneath the warm glow of our Christmases was a dark thread of violence, a sign of a cosmic war against all that is good. If you'll turn in your bulletin insert today, on the side it says, Herod, the monster of Christmas. I want to go through four different areas today. First is with the garden. The characters in the story of Christmas, especially Herod and his cohorts, were merely pawns in this more significant spiritual battle. As Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of an unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Because at the heart of the incarnation, the story of God, him leaving heaven and becoming flesh, tabernacling, setting up his tent, becoming flesh and blood like we are, there's a constant cosmic struggle between God and the powers of evil. We refer to as Satan or the great Satan. He's given the name of Lucifer in Isaiah chapter 14, a God's angel who was the leader of the chorus heaven when he fell from glory. He and his band of cohorts have one singular mission, and their mission is to thwart God's plan for all humanity. And that's why the Christmas story doesn't begin in 5 BC or in Matthew's gospel, but centuries earlier in the garden. The tempter's first salvo against the opening pages of the scripture after God created and placed both Adam and Eve in a beautiful garden of perfection in Eden. The tempter seduces those very first humans into disobeying their father. Their disobedience sustained, sustained the innocence into which they were created, injecting corruption into the cosmos and to every human heart, as Romans 5.12 tells us. But Satan's attacks didn't catch the Godhead by surprise. He didn't say, oh, I didn't know that was going to happen. Because before creation, God had already initiated a plan to rescue the imagers in a renewed world, the new global Eden. We see this in the words of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, where it says, then God said to the serpent, that was that evil one, that tempter, that accuser of mankind. He says, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. 
He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. So Christmas then began way before that starry night in Bethlehem. It started in eternity past. In the councils of the Trinity, along with God's divine counsel of those created beings that he created before he created humans. With God's foreknowledge of the, what would happen, God had already planned on how to redeem the world from sin. This would involve a long and bloody struggle. And it's played out throughout the pages of the Old Testament, where page after page, we see a conflict, the seemingly parallel lines of good and evil going together. We first see Adam and Eve and the tempter. Shortly after that, we see Cain and Abel. We see Isaac and Ishmael. We see Jacob and Esau. We see the nation of Egypt and the nation of Israel. We see King Saul and we see King David. We see the wicked kings of Israel and we see the prophets of God. Parallel lines of good and evil throughout the story that God has given to us in his scriptures. So now you know, when you read Matthew, in his account of the birth of Christ, as it says in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, that Jesus was born in the days of Herod. You know he's writing a narrative about a continuation of what has come before this. For Jesus to be born in the days of Herod might be the worst possible time for a new king of Israel to be born. But Matthew is framing his book not as a tidy biography of Jesus' life, but a clash between two opposing kingdoms. Brings us to the next area we want to look at. Who was this Herod? So exactly, who was King Herod? He's a Roman-appointed governor of Judea, and he took office about 40 B.C., and he's known as Herod the Great because he was a builder, constructing impressive water systems known as aqueducts. And he also rebuilt the temple for the Jews, Solomon's temple. It was called the Second Temple. And it was there in Israel at the time of Jesus' life. Herod's architectural achievements were impressive. Some still exist even today. I've seen pictures of the aqueducts in that area. I've seen portions of the temple, the Wailing Wall, which still stands in Israel today. But Herod was also ruthless and paranoid. And all of Israel knew that he was not the legitimate king of Israel because he descended from Esau and not from Jacob. But he ruled by fear. And this is just a short list of his violent acts. When Herod took his throne, he killed the final members of the Hasmonean ruling family. Those were the family of Jews that ruled during that time. He killed them all. Herod had many of the members of the Sanhedrin killed. Herod slaughtered members of his own family, his wife, Mary Amani, and his mother-in-law, Alexandra. And he also killed three of his own sons. Herod tried to have all the elite leaders in Jerusalem killed upon his death, arranging them to be herded into the Hippodome and killed the moment that he passed. But fortunately, that last decree was ignored. So imagine how bothered Herod must have been when that noisy entourage of possibly a dozen wise men and their supporting cast of characters that came into Jerusalem, that king from the east, asking naively, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Matthew chapter 2, verse 3 tells us, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. 
The people were disturbed because the king was disturbed. You might say, well, why were they disturbed? Because Herod ruled in a culture of fear. He fostered a fear. It's not unlike what our politicians do throughout the world and the news media does today, try to stir up fear within us so that we don't see what good that God is doing in our world. Word got quickly back to Herod and he sprang into action. Not because he wanted, as he claimed, to worship the infant Jesus. In this baby, the evil king saw a threat to his power. Herod gathered together, it says in verse 4, all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law. And these, peop- these priests and teachers of the law knew it backwards and forwards. And interestingly, they knew exactly what the prophets had predicted. They quoted from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, in Bethlehem in Judea, in verse 5 of chapter 2 of Matthew. So Herod summoned the Magi, and he says, knowing that he was clearly paranoid, and about to execute a plan to squash this insurrection, even though this threat was still just a baby in diapers in Bethlehem. Watch closely how Herod employs the seemingly spiritual, benevolent language. He even uses the language of worship in verse 8 when he says, Go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me, so that I may go and worship him. It reminds us how easily Influential people co-opt. They talk about religion, a language of religion, to manipulate and destroy other people. It takes us to the question then, who was the real king of Judah in our next section? Herod had his plan, but it turned out that he was not as powerful as he thought. Like every ruler who seeks to challenge God, he attempts to snuff out the life of the real king of Israel, but it was thwarted by God. God warned the wise men not to go back and report to Herod. And he warned Joseph to travel with Mary and the infant Jesus to Egypt for safety. And this is a reminder in a world that we see even today of suffering and hurt and evil. When it seems like Satan's and his minions have the upper hand, God is sovereign over all things. King David knew this when he wrote Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. David described God's response to the nations and the rulers who plot against the Almighty. He said, Why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against the Anointed One. Let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from slavery to God. But the one who rules in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And then in anger, he rebukes them, terrifying them with fierce, the fierce fury. And the Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem, on my holy mountain. This is the story of Matthew's gospel. This is the story of Christmas. God is determined to set on his mountain, King Jesus. The earth is full of graves of kings who have tried and failed to usurp the true king from Eden to our our modern day. They've tried to snuff out this life of Jesus, but it won't happen. Herod may have seemed to be powerful in his day, and many were afraid of him, and he instilled fear, a culture of fear in all of Israel, like our politicians at times trend to do for us. But he was no match for the king of kings. 
This is what we should take away from the life of Herod this Christmas. The people that we think who possess the power, who put, try to put fear on our hearts, are really all, are not all that powerful. Because God is not troubled by a cosmic rebellion. God laughs at such people and their folly. It takes us to the next section. We see King Herod threatened by a child. An infant child who was innocent and pure now threatened the very power center of Judea. Just imagine how angry Herod must have been when he failed to hear back from those wise men. In today's vernacular, we would say he was ghosted by the Magi. He went to a rage and he slaughtered every baby born in Bethlehem under the age of two years in the most wicked kind of action. Herod saw children as a threat to his power and with cruel math, making sure that no living infant in Bethlehem would one day grow up to take his throne. So he bought, brought sorrows upon, and the sword upon so many families there in Bethlehem. And let's pause and think of how much anguish this would have brought on that sleepy little city of David. Families having babies torn from their arms, taken by Herod's sword, as a father of five children and seven grandkids. I can't imagine that my children dying or my grandkids dying, let alone in this horrendous way. And yet, this is the way of tyrants. The way people are so consumed with power that they cannot see the humanity of those who are in their way. It was the way of Pharaoh when he murdered all the Jewish boys in Egypt. It was the way of so many monstrous, murderous acts today. We're not immune to this horrendous violence today as we think of the school shootings that have happened over the last 20 years in our own country. So many innocent lives destroyed. And as a father, once again, every, I well up with anger at the monsters who cause such pain. But there's something about children that threatens people of power, evil people. Commentator Russell Moore says it this way, Satan hates children because he hates Jesus. The evil destroys the least of these. The most vulnerable among us, as Matthew 26, 25 says, it destroys the picture of Jesus himself, the child delivered by the woman who crushes the head of the evil ones in Genesis 3.15. The demonic powers know that the human race is saved and they are defeated by a child born of a woman, as mentioned in Galatians 4.4 4 and 1 Timothy 2.15. And so they hate children who are his imagers. Those defeated satanic powers want the kingdom of the universe, but a child uproots their reign. The uprooting by this child, Jesus, would signal something that was an end to what has happened up to this point. As John read in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. But this promise comes in the context of judgment against evil powers. You see a child, yes, this specific child threatens Herod and everyone who aligns with the Holy Ones. A child is born in a manger is a sign of judgment to them, but he is peace to those who trust in him. He's an enemies of those who want to go their own way. This judgment, though, is a sign of hope for us, of something new is on its way. 
As Matthew narrates Herod's violence against these innocents, he quotes Jeremiah chapter 31. He echoes the weeping endured by previous generations of mothers and fathers as they lamented the loss of their land as they were carried away from the Israel into Babylon, a foreign land to them. And they wept and they cried as they were carried away. D.A. Carson explains why Matthew's inclusion of this passage is so crucial to our understanding. He says, Matthew chapter 31, verse 15 occurs in a setting of hope. Yes, they were being carried away, but there was still hope. Despite the tears, God says the exiles will return. They had that hope of returning to their land. And now Matthew is referring to Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. Likewise, he says, despite the tears of the Bethlehem mothers, there's hope because the Messiah has escaped Herod and will ultimately reign. Matthew has already made exile the turning point in his thought in verses 11 and 12. He says, for that time when Jesus was born, the divinic line had been dethroned, but the tears of the exile are now being fulfilled. That is to say, the tears begun in Jeremiah's story hundreds of years before that are now climaxed and ended by the tears of the mother in Bethlehem. The heir to David's throne has finally come. The exile is finally over. The true Son of God has arrived, and he will introduce a new covenant, as we're told in Matthew 26, 28. He is the promise of Jeremiah's prophecy. The heir to David's throne has come. The long cosmic struggle between the serpent seed and the woman's seed has culminated in Christ. That's Satan, the accuser, the tempter, the evil one, the father of lies, the author of bloodshed the mur with murder in his hearts will be defeated by a baby when he ascends on the Roman cross. When he endures the wrath of his father turning his back on him, but when he rises again in glorious victory on that third day. And the sin that has so gripped the hearts of humans is now being rolled back. That fear that we have because we did not have a Savior is no longer. This Christmas reminds us that in the true kingdom, Jesus' kingdom is not a kingdom that prizes power over the vulnerable, but a kingdom that's flourishing, where the last will be first, where the kingdom is made up of the lowly and the weak. This doesn't make the suffering, the violence, the bloodshed that we see in those days and today any less hard to endure. Matthew's not giving us a fake Christmas wrapped up in bows of sentimentality. He's giving us something much better. He's giving us the gift of hope. The hope that we do have in Jesus Christ. So this Christmas, as we survey the brokenness in our world and the world which Jesus was entered into, we should avoid two wrong approaches as we view it. As most of you know, I'm a forever optimist. I'll see something good and no matter what the situation is. But I'm also a realist. I don't say, well, that doesn't exist. Yes, there are problems in life, but we can make something of those problems. We shouldn't be tempted to be too overly optimistic, Pollyannish disposition that refuses to see any evil, but we should never 
have a despairing mindset that only sees violence and horror. In Jesus, we see Rachel crying for her children, and we see the promise of those tears being wiped away by a new, everlasting kingdom of God. We see the Heavenly Father turn his back on Christ as he hung on that cross. But then we see the triumphant Christ rising again. As to punctuate this hope, Matthew includes a little note in his passage today. In verse 19, he says, after Herod died, yes, Herod was a paranoid, powerful monarch, but he died. Moreover, his kingdom was then divided up by Rome. His sons shared some of his power, and not too many decades later, there would be no more Herods. The throne over the throne of in Israel. In fact, not too many centuries later, there'd be no more Rome at all. But what about the infant Herod tried to kill? He lives forever. Having defeated sin, death, and the grave. The infant king would outlast the illegitimate king of Israel. Rome would fall. The empire of Rome would collapse. But Jesus' kingdom will not. The seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And this is the hope that we have as believers in Jesus Christ that we carry into every age. When we gather here on Sundays, when we talk with our, to, about Jesus to our family and friends and our neighbors, when we work and when we play, we do all this with a kingdom expectations, a kingdom mindset. We are the ones who can look evil in the face and say to ourselves and the world, a new day is dawning. We will have everlasting life. It gives us the opportunity to read the headlines of today, not with apathetic indifference or trembling fear, but with confidence that the kingdom of God is now on the move. When Christ set up that kingdom, until he returns, we are part of building God's kingdom. But one last area we want to look at, that we guard our own hearts about the Herod inside us. Because there's also a personal lesson that we can learn from the life of Herod this Christmas and throughout the year. When reading the Christmas story of Matthew, most of us like to fashion ourselves as the good guys. I know every book I read, every movie I watch, I'm always the good guy out of it. I'm always that protagonist. But we need to be careful. We'd be the wise men who are rushing to worship Jesus and bowing down at his feet. We'd be the shepherds declaring the good news to everyone. We'd be Simeon and Anna waiting in anticipation for Christ. But it could be that there's more Herod in us than we want to admit. We too are threatened by Jesus, the way he enters our lives and disrupts our power. In a sense, King Herod's reaction to Christ is a picture of all of us at times. If we want to be king, and someone else has already declared that he is king, one of us has to give in. Only one person can sit on that absolute throne. It has to be the one with absolute authority. A summons of unconditional loyalty. 
and then inevitably trigger, triggers a resistance within our own hearts. I know when somebody tells me, you can't do that, I want to say, oh, I think not. And I want to do what they say I can't do. So that resistance is somewhat inbred, I think, in all of us. Even the hatred, the claims against God in our lives. We create God of our likings to mass the hostility that we have for God who wants to be the absolute rule, the absolute king of our lives. I think it's easy for all of us to point to tyrants who ruled in Jesus' day and the tyrants who rule today and whisper silent prayers of relief that we are not like them. But we may miss that Herod in our hearts that we need to guard against. How we resist Jesus in favor of our own pursuits. How we quickly put our trust in the worldly powers instead of grounding our hope in the kingdom of God. How easy it is to marginalize those little people that soon seem to get in our way on our daily transactions. So Herod is a powerful reminder that we cannot be neutral about Jesus. We can either take up arms against him or we can bow down to worship him as the wise men did in repentance and faith. This Christmas and throughout all this year though, let us worship and celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us, when we have those moments where that Herod starts to rear up a little bit in our hearts, that we bow and worship our Lord and Savior. Let this Christmas be a turning point for our lives that we live throughout the year of love, peace, and joy to everyone we impact. May God's grace and mercy and peace flow through us to everyone. Now, on the other side of your bulletin insert, I've given you another Advent devotional for this week. So if you have time this week, go through that. It's about a Christmas from a cosmic perspective. And then next week will be our Christmas Eve service. We only have one service at 5.30 p.m. It's our fourth week of the Advent, the candle of love. And as part of our Christmas Eve celebration, we're going to have readings and singing, some special music, a short message. And the message next week will be the misfits of Christmas. If you've seen the, I think it's Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer cartoon where they have the island of misfits toys. But we had a misfits at Christian, Christmas also. As we go through a little bit of Christ's genealogy, and we'll look at four forgotten women that without their contribution to the line of Christ, we would not celebrate Christmas. So join us next week. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 16 is the passage we'll be taking that lesson from. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time where we can celebrate the birth of Christ. Yes, this message was a little bit different because it focuses on the monster of Christmas. But unbeknownst to him, that wicked Herod, who was called Herod the Great, he fulfilled numerous prophecies that you had prophesied about the coming Messiah. So even though his rule was wicked, your will prevailed. 
you had victory through this all. And in our hearts, let us not to have a Herod in our hearts, but to celebrate the love that the shepherds had, that the wise men had, that Simeon and Anna had, to lift up your name, to celebrate your name this Christmas season. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.